Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. For many of us, it's nothing less than vital to keep up with the latest developments in our communities, across the country and around the world. The media landscape across the country has changed dramatically recently in recent decades, and recent layoffs at Vice, Insider, BuzzFeed, Gannett, and NPR, to name a few, have illustrated how challenging it can be to keep newsrooms fully staffed. Middle Tennessee is no different because avenues to gather news have changed. So have newsrooms. Today, newsrooms have shrunk and some publications have gone defunct. There are far less reporters covering beats than there were 30 years ago. How does this impact the people who live in Nashville and Middle Tennessee? That's coming up later this hour. But first, it's time for Add Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I'm encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville and on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. Okay, so let's get right to it. Near the end of Monday's episode about Middle Tennessee's Palestinian community, our guest, Isam Bahor, used the phrase, Zionist money, which raised the eyebrows of some of our listeners. We received an email from the Jewish Federation of Nashville expressing their concern. Right. So senior producer Steve Haruch reached out to Deborah Olashansky, who is their community relations director. Here's what she had to say about the phrase. The phrase uh, Zionist money sadly is a version of an anti-Semitic trope. Now, I'm not saying that the speaker intended it that way, but I do think it's important to recognize that that terminology is a trope used to promote a certain sort of anti-Semitic sentiment that is that can be dangerous, especially in this moment when we're already in the Jewish community facing so many anti-Semitic attacks. Deborah also told Steve that while she's a fan of the show and wants everyone to be able to share their story, she wished we had been more clear that our panelists were giving their own personal perspectives on some complex political issues. Steve also followed up with Isam, who said, quote, there is a clear distinction between Zionism and the Jewish faith. We see that as a very clear distinction. We see a lot of groups try to conflate the two and say Zionism is Judaism. That is factually an incorrect statement. Isam also said that to him, it is very clear that his statement referred specifically to Zionist organizations that lobby on behalf of the Israeli state. The relationship between Israel and Palestine and Judaism and Zionism is complicated, to say the least. Mm. The statements from Isam and Deborah speak to that fact, but it's important that we recognize that anti-Semitism is very real, dangerous, and is certainly not something we want to foster on our show. We also heard from our listener Nick Lindemann on Twitter, who took issue with the piece of audio we included in that episode from a local rally for Palestine a few weeks ago. One of the chants from that rally was, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. So Nick wrote on Twitter that this chant is a call for, quote, the destruction of Israel and the death of mil millions of Jews, end quote. So 
This is a common slogan in the demand for justice for Palestinians, often understood to be a call for a Palestinian state that extends from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, which is the territory that includes Israel. It is also a phrase that has been used by anti-Israel terrorist groups like Hamas. And so the use of this chant can make members of the Jewish community feel ostracized. But it is important to point out that organizers of this rally laid ground rules that at this rally would not welcome or tolerate any anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish sentiments. So again, it's complex. All right, Anna, what else have we heard from our listeners? So we had a show all about road rage, and we received a few comments on how the road rage death of our guest, Jason Sparks, his brother, Chris, underscores that something needs to be done about guns. Tommy, who goes by Cup of Truth on Twitter, wrote saying, quote, great job on This is Nashville, Jason. I don't understand how legislatures can fail to act on gun problems when presented with such tragic incidents as your brother's murder. Dr. Katrina Green also added us on Twitter saying, quote, Jason nailed it. We need to address the gun problem if we are going to end road rage, mur- road rage murders in Tennessee. We are fifth in the nation for road rage incidents. The Wild West guns for all policy in Tennessee is killing us. Hashtag doctors for gun safety. She also added, quote, the victim of road rage shouldn't be blamed. It's the person who decides that being cut off or honked at is a death sentence who is at fault. Hot-headed humans plus easy access to guns in stressful situations equals people hurt or killed, end quote. During that episode, Lynn on Twitter reminded us that, quote, road rage kills cyclists, too. Yeah, and unfortunately, that is something that is all too true here in Nashville, as the number of cyclist deaths just continue to rise each year. So remember, share the road, y'all. Indeed. All right. So for yesterday's show, we reached out to our community to ask how they feel about the legislation to abolish community oversight boards in Tennessee. And 98 percent of our respondents said that they strongly oppose this move by our legislators. After the show, we continued to receive comments like this from listeners on Twitter. Calvin wrote, quote, absolutely keep it. It was voted in, and the only way it should ever be taken down is a vote by the people. Liam also tweeted at us saying, quote, abolishing the COB is proof that the Republican supermajority wants to do to Nashville what they've done to Memphis so long ago. Hold us down and silence us. We've heard that quite a bit. Now, okay, so before you go, Anna, you have some exciting news for our listeners, right? Of course. WPLN's morning newsletter is now Nashvillager. It's an in-depth look at the top news stories of the day from WPLN and a roundup of what's happening around the region and music recommendations for empty friends at WNXP and features from This Is Nashville. And there's also a few fun surprises. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't subscribed, you can do so at WPLN.org. And Anna is the lead writer of this newsletter. Check it out, y'all. That is our digital lead, Anna Geigos Cannon. Anna, as always, thanks for this roundup, and we'll see you soon. Of course, and our listeners know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram, and let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey and let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It's super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your interest and needs in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll examine the media landscape in Nashville and Middle Tennessee and learn why having a thriving press is imperative to our city and region. 
What do you think about the state of the media? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Kaliale Colonna, and this is Nashville. When you want to be informed about what is happening where you live, where do you turn? Do you grab a print newspaper, if you can find one? Do you turn on the television? Maybe you turn on your radio. Or, you know, pull up your podcasting app. Do you scroll through social media? Are you among the 26% of Americans who get their news from YouTube? The ways we consume the news have changed, and the press has had its share of struggles keeping up. 30 years ago, Nashville had two daily print newspapers and dozens of journalists camped out at the Capitol and in the courts. Since then, publications have come and gone, and many beats go on. But what is the state of our current media landscape? Is it healthy? My next guests are here to help answer that question. I'd like to introduce Deborah Fisher, the executive director of the Tennessee Coalition for Open Government and director and of the John Siegenthaler Chair of the First Amendment Studies at MTSU. Deborah, thanks for being with us today. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. So you're a veteran of local media. What would you say are the most significant ways the landscape has changed here in Nashville? Well, I think what's happened in Nashville is the same as what's happened across the country in terms of, um, you know, there are fewer journalists in local media. But I would also say that there is a pretty robust local news operation in Nashville and the surrounding areas. There's a robust information system and a lot of the local news organizations have changed um, in terms of what they do. But Nashville actually is blessed with a lot of local news media and a lot of local journalists covering things. Is that different from what we see in, in across the country? No, I think that is similar to um, your large markets. I think in your smaller markets, um, it's been more difficult. Um, maybe newsrooms, say in a Jackson, Tennessee, that had you know 12 or 15 reporters, maybe down to one or two. So I think those are the areas where you have seen a lot of loss. But in Nashville, it's a competitive uh, news environment. And so you have still have four TV stations. You still have your traditional newspapers that also operate on the web. You have new organizations like the Tennessee Lookout, the Tennessee Star, you know, that uh, bring perspectives that uh, are different or funded in different ways. Um, so you have a lot out there. What is the impact of these smaller communities losing their local news organizations? Uh, some of them uh, have not lost them entirely, but they've been uh, minimized. Um, and I think that does have an effect on the volume of local news. And when you don't have an news organization that sort of follows the principles, which is, you know, the pursuit of truth instead of, say, the pursuit of an agenda or information to support an agenda, um, there can be uh, a little bit more difficulty in getting information. Um, certainly, government puts out their own press releases, and uh, you see more and more of that. But in some places, you know, when there's a crime, you basically see the press release from the police department and you may not have independent reporting on it. So I think in the local communities, you know, preserving that independent reporting, not government, not partisan, 
but an independent news organization is important. And, and they're still there. I mean, they're all over the state, but some of them are smaller operations than they were. Mm-hmm. Now, back in February, we had Nashville Banner editor Steve Cavendish on the show to talk about the case of Paul Shane Garrett, who spent a decade in prison for a crime he didn't commit. I asked Steve how a story this important flew under the radar for so long. He said you need to have fundraising a functioning press, pardon me, to even be a valid question. Here's a little bit more of what he had to say. We don't cover the courts anymore. I mean, in the 90s, uh, when the Tennessean and the Banner were going head to head and you had, you know, big daily uh, newsrooms kind of going after each other, you know, you had multiple people in each newsroom covering different facets of the court every day. You know, you had, you had, People who were whose offices were in the courthouses, and so they didn't they didn't miss these sorts of things. Now you're lucky if somebody you know, is is even reading court dockets on a regular basis. You know, we talk about things that are that help a democracy function. Kind of the ability to have oversight over the courts and the, the ability for people to understand what's happening in our court systems is a is a big part of it. Okay, so Deborah, we see the difference it might have made for an individual like Paul Shane Garrett to have better coverage of the courts. Talk to me about the difference that this makes for us collectively. Well, you know, when we do have a lot of press in Nashville, um, but Steve was right. I mean, I lived through that period. Uh, you know, I was at the Tennessean as a senior editor for news at the time when we had three court reporters mm-hmm. and then we had two and then we had one. And it becomes difficult for even just one person covering courts to maintain not only the volume of coverage, but the expertise. And so I think, you know, one of the advantages um, or one of the things you lose when you don't have um, as many reporters is a level of expertise, a level of understanding. Now, journalists know how to go into a situation. They're trained on how to do this, to gather information, sort of become experts by interviewing a lot of people. They don't become experts, but they interview a lot of people. But still, that sort of understanding of uh, the systems that you're covering in a certain level of depth results in better news reporting. And I mean, that's the bottom line. So, you know, that is one effect. Mm -hmm. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Emily Cochran is a Southern correspondent for The New York Times. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, as, as someone who lives here working on stories for the national outlet, how do you view your role in the local media ecosystem? I think I supplement it in a way that you're very, Nashville is so lucky to have so many reporters still here who work so hard. I've already learned a lot from everyone here just in the, in the first couple months that I've been here. I think my job is to write for a different audience. Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I work for an outlet that has national readers, that has global readers. So it's not necessarily writing every day, but waiting for the moments to explain to someone who has never been here. Uh, who may never have the chance to come here, you know, a very real issue or a, or a, something that's happening here that matters to the people here and why it's something that they should know about and something that they should be thinking about when they think about their communities, the place they live in and the place they, they want to learn about. How, how do you go about explaining what is happening here to the rest of the country? Like what types of misconceptions are you working against? I think we all come to, we, we all approach places we've never been with preconceived notions, especially because there have been instances where we haven't covered 
communities as thoroughly as we should. And we, we have we've only focused on one segment of of a population. So I think anytime there's a story that challenges a pre-existing notion about uh, the states here. Anytime there's a, there's a story that surprises you in a way, those are the ones that are the most exciting to me. And the ones that I'm looking forward to telling here is because it just broadens people's understanding of the region of this state. And and that that can only be a good thing, I think. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil e. Colonna. We're talking this hour about the state of the media with journalists Emmy, Emily Cochran and Deborah Fisher. You can join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, these days, people get their news in a variety of formats. Some listen to radio, others watch television, but an increasing number of people get their news online. With the internet comes misinformation. Deborah, what are the biggest challenges we are facing in this internet era? Uh, probably the noise, and on social media, particularly in different different platforms, are a little different. But uh, but I think the misinformation, and then also as we've learned, the disinformation, the intentional spreading of disinformation, creates so much noise and creates so much um, you know bubbles of information that it becomes, you feel like you've been on social media and you've learned a lot, but you really haven't learned anything, you mm-hmm. know, or haven't learned anything that's true. You've just heard a lot of people like in a bar or something, you know, chatting about their thoughts. And so I think that that is a challenge of social media. And I think a lot of people are very passive about, um, you know, seeking out the truth in the news and they're just listening in and, and that can create uh, problems. They haven't learned to become proactive consumers of news. Um, to really distinguish, and maybe they aren't really interested. Maybe they just want to find uh, information or or uh, that sort of affirms their already held beliefs, and maybe they're, you know, interested in a community like that. Mm-hmm. Um, social media is great, and it's a great platform in terms of um, speech and expression and has done, you know, has opened up a lot of wonderful, you know, avenues for people to connect. Um, but it, there is a dark side, and I think that is really, you know, we're trying to understand how to kind of navigate the misinformation that gets spread there and the disinformation. How can local news help people sort out fact and fiction that they find online? Right, and you've seen a lot of that in the past decade where there are fact checks, you know, and uh, on on uh, things that are reported or things that are um things that are um, kind of become viral on social media. And I think that's important. But I also think it's important that local news organizations have a presence in social media and have a brand there so that um, they can, uh, you know, share the news as well or, uh, in, that, in that arena. In, in a survey by Gallup and the Knight Foundation earlier this year, half the people who responded believe news organizations deliberately mislead them. How... I'm going to ask you, Deborah, and I want you to chime in, Emily. How challenging is that kind of perspective? Per- perception, pardon me. Um, it's challenging. I mean, you know, I think that that has been around for a long time, uh, even prior to social media, where there was an idea that within a newsroom there was this, um, you know, uh, conspiracy to approach news a certain way. And for anybody who's worked in a newsroom, you realize, no, it really is just chaos. There wasn't a particular Mm -hmm. uh, reason for that. Now, um, it is challenging. And I think that um, the 
dissatisfaction with the, you know, cable uh, news where so much is just commentary and people talking about the news and, you know, getting people whipped up. And, you know, there's a lot of that that goes on. And I think that that spread over to their opinions about local news. And um, and in terms of local news, um, you know, that's just not the case. Local news is very accountable because you're right here in the same town. You can you know who to call up and complain to. But it is so I, I sometimes wonder if in those surveys, if they're referring to local news or national news, mm. and maybe there's a, I think there is a distinction. Emily? I think it's sad in a way because to in, in, in some instances, I can't, you can't necessarily blame people. There have been instances where the media hasn't gotten it right, where we have overlooked a community, where we've done harm to a community with, with our, with our coverage and you have to make up for that. And you and I think that's why it's so important to have more people in this industry, to have people who come from different backgrounds, who bring their lived perspectives into a newsroom and into their coverage to make sure that we we aren't just telling the same kind of story again. We're finding different people. We're finding those communities that haven't had representation. I think for me, it's it's very easy to become, you know, people are frustrated with coverage that my outlet has done or that national media has done. And I sort of, it, you know, it's not it's not against me personally. It's just against something they've conjured in their mind. They may they probably maybe have never even met a reporter before, let alone someone who works for an outlet like mine. So I think for me, it, it's it I, I would like to think that I've always taken care when I've when I've spoken to people when I'm introducing to myself, but I think more than ever, I spend a, I try to spend more time explaining how my job works, mm. explaining my process, explaining how I'm thinking of the story, how the story process is going to work for me internally. You know, there'll be a certain number of editors. There's fact checking. You know, I may come back to you with more questions, and just trying to peel back the curtain of this is how I do this job. This is this is the process. How, how do how, how have people responded when you lay it out like that? I think generally it's it's been good. There are there are always going to be people who aren't comfortable talking to a reporter. And I think especially in the age of social media, talking to a reporter, having something that goes online that goes viral, there's a different there's a different connotation now. There's a different risk of putting yourself out there. So respecting the people who are just never going to be comfortable. But I think people appreciate having a human in front of them who is who is there themselves who is you know not coming in with an agenda but just saying this is how it's going to go and if you have boundaries if you're not comfortable having this part in the paper let's talk about it and i will respect your boundaries it's that's i think those conversations help build that trust and sometimes leaders foment the discontent that people have with the media for instance former president trump has come after several national outlets including yours Emily, what has it been like to work for an organization that has been explicitly attacked? I think you take even more pride in your work and even more pride in the importance of what we do. And I think it's it's even more important for us to, to get it right. You know, I think it can be. It can be scary. I think you're thinking about, you know, when you go to a political rally, maybe you're thinking about personal security in a way you didn't. I mean, and this extends beyond this country, right? There's a Wall Street Journal who's who's in prison for doing his job in Russia, and that's not okay. And that they're, you know, we should be concerned about that abroad, and we should be concerned about people being able to do that same job here as well. Um, but I think it just makes the job even more important. And 
you take it even more seriously. And it's it's even more of a of a privilege when people do decide to trust you and they do decide to look past their, you know, whatever preconceived notion they had and give you a chance and share their story. You were at the Capitol on January 6th, right? I was. I was in the House chamber. What was that experience like for you? It was scary. The working working in the Capitol as a congressional reporter, it becomes like a second home because you spend so much time there. And to have that safety be shattered for not just the press corps who were in the chamber, but everyone who worked there, the lawmakers, the staff, the police, the custodians, was hard because you you lose a sense of of safety and and security. And there were there were reporters that day who were targeted because people realized uh, who they worked for and they were targeting not them, but their, but their outlets. And I think it was a sobering moment for everyone. The Capitol is not the same after that. And it, and it is even more challenging when there are people who downplay that experience and downplay the fear that day. Now, Deborah, how can local media outlets gain the trust of people who don't follow them or people who like we're talking about now may have a deep distrust of them? Well, I think local news organizations have to focus on the pursuit of truth. And they also have to, a good news organization is going to examine itself from time to time about when, you know, when their biases or when are are playing into maybe a choice of a story or how they present a story. And inside what I know is that inside a news organization, even if you say make a mistake, you come back and you examine that. And you also try to have uh, a diversity of people with different viewpoints, different um, backgrounds and cultural experiences within your news organization so that you're not all just groupthink inside the newsroom. And I think that's important. I, you know, I remember earlier this year, the first story I heard on the um, shooting in the California ballroom, uh, the it was a radio story, and the reporter immediately uh, said, oh, and this is, you know, we're looking at this as a possible hate crime. But at the time, police had said nothing about it being a hate crime. And it, you know, but because it was in a Chinese, Vietnamese, you know, mm-hmm. area, and then, you know, within a day or so, it came out, or maybe it was earlier than that, that the shooter, it was really a personal uh, shooting. But I thought that in that report, that that showed some initial, you know, leaping to a conclusion based on sort of the framework of understanding that these shootings, you know, if it involved, you know, the death of Chinese people, it must be a hate crime. And, and I don't think it ended up being classified as that. But in that situation, I feel certain that the news organization went back and looked at how they approached that. So, you know, you've got to self-correct. News organizations make um, mistakes. And the good ones, the ones to trust, and the ones over time are the ones that will tell you we made a mistake, you know, and we're, you know, this is what the mistake was. Now, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier about diversity and of media organizations and how that can kind of build um, a, a spectrum for many different perspectives. What have been some of the barriers to having a more diverse media core, Emily? 
I think the fact that there are less news organizations, there used to be a ladder to really figure out how to do this job to get experience without necessarily even going to a journalism school and getting a degree. There were opportunities to just try something and to get a feel for the career, to work your way up. That ladder is missing several rungs now because news there are less news organizations, less opportunities to try things out. It shouldn't be that you need to have an Ivy League degree to work in an outlet. It shouldn't be that you need to go to journalism school to, to, to work in an outlet. You should, it should be, it should be something that everyone has a chance to, to try to, to get a feel for just like any other career. But there's a, there's a financial, there can be a financial barrier because it's expensive maybe to live in, in some of these bigger cities where there is a robust media scene. It's expensive to live in New York. It's expensive to live in DC. It's expensive to live in Nashville. It is expensive to, it's expensive to live in Nashville. And so, you know, if you don't have the financial backing to, to, you know, take a, take a leap at an unpaid internship, you're leaving people out. It should not, it should, there's a huge financial barrier. And then of course you have instances where, you know, who are you taking a chance on? Who is getting the opportunity with little experience without the journalism degree to, to do a story? Who's, who's the person who's leading the newscast? Who is the person you're seeing on camera? Who's just getting the chance? I have been very lucky in that people saw people saw someone who had never worked for an outlet outside of the state of Florida and said, you know what, let's give her a chance at an internship in Washington, D.C. Someone took that chance on me. How many people are getting a similar chance? And you need to be, you know, you need to be giving those opportunities need to be present for all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. Deborah, you teach a class on editing. What do you want aspiring journalists to know? Hmm. Well, I would say that, and we were just talking about getting into the business, and it is true that in, you know, the ladder of journalism, you might start in an area where both in broadcast or uh, sort of what we think of as traditional print in a market that doesn't pay very much. And that can be a barrier for people who don't have maybe family support because they have to work at a low salary. But on the flip side, Um, You know, people go into journalism. Some people leave journalism after five years, um, but they have incredible experience. Uh, They learn a lot in terms of how to um, put together information and just just a lot of skills that are transferable to different um, jobs. So even if they stay in journalism and eventually, you know, go up the pay scale, or if they get out of journalism, there is opportunity. And it is a great job um, to get to know the world, to get to know how things work, um, to get to know how to talk to people and interview people and gather information and put it together. I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. But there there are so many skills that you learn as a, a, a news reporter in particular, but also just in a newsroom and editing position. So what needs to happen to ensure that locally our media landscape is in a healthy space? Well, uh, I, hmm, I don't know that they're in an unhealthy space, but... Uh, healthier. You, healthier. Okay. Uh, well, uh, you know, I think hopefully what I would like to see is us move beyond... I, I feel like people are getting tired of social media and they're starting to get smarter about it and they don't want to feel bad after they've been in social media spaces. So I think what needs to be happen is for people 
to say, hey, we don't want to always be in a shouting match. Let's let's try to get information and let's make, you know, some good choices. So I think we need to see something on the part of news consumers. I mean, and uh, local news needs to continue to reach out and kind of cultivate audiences and and stay the course, stay the course as an independent news organization seeking the truth. And I think that that in the end would will win the day. Deborah Fisher is the executive director of Tennessee's Coalition for Open Government and John Siegenthaler, chair of First Amendment Studies at MTSU. She was joined by Emily Cochran, a Southern correspondent for The New York Times. Thanks to you both for being with us today. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at the media's importance to our democracy as the fourth estate. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today we're talking about the state of the media here in Middle Tennessee. Earlier in the hour, we discussed the importance of local media. As reporters have shown, local media is the most trusted form of media. The media and the press is known as the fourth estate or fourth pillar of democracy. The press generally takes the objective view on political issues and holds lawmakers to account for their actions. How has the press contributed to the current state of political polarization? And how can we adapt so that people are able to gain access to the news? For that, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Levi Ismail is an investigative reporter for News Channel 5, and Summer Ali is the founder and CEO of Millions of Conversations and with the Vanderbilt Project of Unity and American Democracy. Levi, Summer, thanks for being with us. Great to see you. Welcome to This is Nashville. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Excited to be here. Really great to have you both. Okay, so Summer, you work in mediation and educating others on how to bring people together despite their differences. What role can media play in that? Well, media helps shape the narrative. Media is constantly shaping how people relate to each other, how they see each other, how they see each other and the stories that they're reading, that they're listening to. That they're that they're hearing about, um, and and it's shaping how they are existing in the community together. So, for our democracy, how important is it for us to have a functioning press? It's everything, quite frankly. I, I think that I think it's so important for us to be informed as citizens. It's really difficult for us to hold elected officials accountable if we don't have a functioning um, um, uh, journalism. Um, branch, if you will, um, within our within our democracy. And that that information is key. So do you feel the current media landscape is properly informing the public? I think it depends on which part of the media landscape. Um, mm. And so that's why I'm in such favor of local news and local news being robust. And I think you have media and you also have journalism and journalism is a part of media. Um, I think that a media has evolved over the past couple of decades. Um, there are there are parts of the, the media um, industry and sector that ha are sens that are sensational, that are almost infotainment um, like uh, they're all, and and they are sensationalizing um, what so-called news 
Um, and whereas you'll have and many times more on the local side, um, I don't want to say all national outlets um, are not accurately reporting news because that's not fair. and That's not true either. But I think for the most part, you have a lot of local media outlets that are committed um, to accurate reporting and journalism. Levi, as a local journalist, what have you learned about the impact of reporting for the community? I think one thing that uh, really stands out is, you know, when you when you have those interactions with people and just wherever it might be, for whatever story it might be, uh, people will genuinely appreciate knowing that you are willing to be there to listen to them. They may not see the Dan Rathers or the, you know, the Don Lemons or whoever else might be around you know, on a consistent basis, they may not see some of these big name journalists coming around to say hi or, you know, better understand their their crisis or whatever they might be going through. But they see the local news reporters. They recognize your face. They know that they go to the grocery stores where you go and, you know, they have kids in the same schools that you have kids in. And so just knowing that there is that connection that ability to be able to reach out and tell you about something that's going on in their communities. I think that's that's huge. I mean, that is why many of us get into this business is because we want to give a voice to people who may otherwise think that they don't have one. And so if we can show that not only can you reach out to us and we will be there for you, I, I think that in itself helps to build that credibility on the local news level, whereas you know, we're already at a constant battle with what's happening on the national news side where, you know, people might think that these two things are one and the same when in reality, you know, we are here. We are mm-hmm. the ones willing to, go, you know, we're, we go through the tornadoes and, you know, the the uh, whatever issues that the that might be happening at the Capitol. We'll go through the, all of that with you and share your stories to a larger audience. If you will, it's as if you have you have skin in the game. Yes. Absolutely. You know, I, I kind of I've heard that a lot from people, particularly in the last couple of weeks um, after the Covenant shooting and the protests with the Tennessee three people reacted differently and responded to the flood of global media that came and descended upon the city for those few weeks. Now they're gone. And it's our local journalists. They're who gone. Are yes. Continuing. <laughs> you know, key, key, key part of that sentence. They're gone. They're That's gone. True. OK, so, you know, since the Telecom Act of 1996, There's been a mass consolidation of media outlets. Some newsrooms have vanished. Other ones, local ones in particular, have really gone away. How does that impact the news that people are getting, Levi? You know, uh, people, I I think, have a, just my understanding is that there's already this distrust of the corporate entities that control or that may own many of these different news organizations. And so the understanding is that if I don't trust this group, well, then I shouldn't trust the local news station that owns them or that is being owned by them. Um, and so I, I understand where there's this uh, there's this constant uh, concern that where you're getting your news is not going to be you know trustworthy or it's not going to be completely transparent. Um, but that's on the news agencies to be, or the news stations to be able to find ways to build that credibility by telling people like, we are human. When, you know, these events happen and other news organizations decide to leave because something else is going on, well, we're gonna be here, you know, and we'll report on the stories. Um, And so that, I mean, they may seem like small steps uh, by, you know, keeping some of that consistency and and covering some of these stories, whether it's a small update or not, people appreciate knowing that we 
we're going to be here and and we exist because they are the ones you know to offer us information and they are the ones that ultimately we serve summer what's your reaction to the consolidation of media Yes, I think there have been a number of different reasons for it, um, and that includes also just um, how social media has impacted uh, as well, um, just how people are reacting and receiving the news, and 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 not just not just social media, internet, um, mm-hmm. the internet as well, because it's changed the advertising models, um, it's changed how advertising has worked, and I think that um, both for broadcast and for and and print, and so with that in mind, and how people are receiving news and receiving information. That has affected and impacted the the business model um, for journalism and for media, um, as cable news has as well. So all of these different factors um, are coming into play, and that gets to people also trusting and what is incentivizing, depending on what the budgets are for these different outlets. So the bigger your budget is, probably the more you might have to be making some compromises that you don't want to make or relying on on advertising. And so I've had the benefit of previously, and it taught me a lot, I had the um, opportunity and privilege to serve on the board for six years at WPLN. And I'm familiar with your budget. And I will tell you, I think that the weir revenue model... um, and, and how you all handle advertising is very trustworthy and it's very transparent. Um, I think the same thing goes for Channel 5 um, here locally. And I think also like we're seeing Nashville Banner, for example, making a reemergence um, through Steve Cavendish um, and Demetria Kaladimos. I'm, I'm, I'm on their advisory board and I'm familiar with their funding model too. And it's trustworthy and it's transparent. Now, when you get to other um, outlets like Fox and CNN and even MSNBC too, um, um, all three, it's People are asking and scratching their heads and just saying, what's incentivizing them? Mm-hmm. So if they're covering this topic in this way and to put this particular personality to cover this topic and in this way, is that because they're trying to appeal to a certain um, audience? Mm-hmm. And is that certain audience of interest to certain advertisers? Mm-hmm. You know, I understand what you're both saying. At the end of the day, they're media outlets, but they're also businesses. Yeah. So it's key to looking at the bottom line. To keep up with a lot of the times they've changed or adopted to online models or adjusting and adapting to social media, Levi, one of the ways you've adapted to this shifting media landscape is by using social media. You frequently post bite-sized news stories on TikTok. Let's listen to one now. In less than one week, Representative Justin Jones and Representative Justin Pearson went from being expelled from the Tennessee House to being reappointed to the same position. Now, how does that happen? Both these men were expelled for breaking decorum by using a bullhorn on the House floor to demand gun reform. Which meant their seats were left vacant. Well, you can't leave entire communities without representation. So both Memphis and Nashville were given an opportunity to appoint someone to these positions until they can run a special election at some point. Nashville voted unanimously to send Jones back to his seat, and Memphis voted for Pearson. The reception was overwhelming, but both lawmakers make it clear that their fight for gun reform is far from over. I want to welcome the people back to the people's house. I want to welcome democracy back to the people's house. So these TikToks are pretty typical for the platform. We see your face explaining the news story Uh with captions running at the bottom. There are also screen grabs of tweets and clips from News Channel 5's coverage. Are you reaching different people with TikTok than you do with television? Absolutely. And I'm trying to hide my smile right now because it's, (laughs) listen, the, the question alone has come up so many times. And, you know, I know that when people will watch some of these videos, you'll see them in the comments say something like, man, 
I'm so grateful that you're covering this. this. The news never covers this kind of stuff, which is funny for me because mm. I'm looking at the video. It's quite obvious that the video has the News Channel 5 <laughs> branding on there. And so people have already associated what they see with, they've made, a lot of folks have made up their minds as far as what they see on TV news. And they imagine that whatever they see there is not quite I mean, there's going to be some sort of special interest, you know, pulling the strings or something. And I think that's where we have a great opportunity to be able to go into some of these spaces on social media, what have you, and putting and put something together that people are looking for. It's not that, you know, folks don't want to be, you know, uh, entertained and, you know, informed at the same time. It's like, no, they are looking for news. They want to be uh, informed. It's just they would like it to be on their time where they can find it. And they want stations to be able to reach out and say, you know, we value the fact that you are looking for this elsewhere. It may not be on TV. It may not be on radio. It may not be online. It could be in something like this where you're constantly on your phones or whatever it might be. And I think this is, I think it's, it's fascinating whenever I run into someone who says, you know, I saw this and I never watched the news. I don't watch the news but I appreciate you informing me in my mind. I'm thinking this didn't even exist two years ago, Yeah. but we have to be the ones to actively listen to people and say, you know what? I understand your concern. If we are to build credibility as a news organization, well, the first place we start is by listening to people who say, this is how I want that. And you meet them where they're at, meet them where they are. Okay. So, you know, there's a lot of people on social media, reporting quotes on platforms that aren't held accountable as you are, you, as you are being held accountable working yeah. with News Channel 5. What are the issues or complications that can arise when folks are doing their version of reporting? Well, I mean, it, many of these folks don't even consider themselves or don't even think of themselves as journalists, but they're doing the job. And so what you'll see is a lot of times there are people who are going to consider them as credible news sources much, you know, way before they consider a TV station as a credible news source. And so there's a lot of responsibility there to make sure that you have your facts correct and that you're, you're not just putting yourself in the stories just for the sake of, you know, getting attention and gaining followers. And I think instead of news organizations putting that off and saying, okay, well, we'll just ignore those folks and keep doing what we need to do for the sake of, you know, just maintaining our budgets and maintaining, you know, paying the folks that we need to pay to keep them around. Uh, I think it's paramount for us to understand, like, there's a reason why people pay attention to those guys. There's a reason why they're doing that. And um, if we don't embrace the change or embrace some sort of, uh, you know, model that's, that's similar, but, you know, use our, our credibility, use the fact that we are trained journalists mm -hmm. in this, in this same space. I mean, at, at that point, we're just kind of saying everyone just figure it out. I think yeah. that's a missed opportunity. And that could be incredibly dangerous. You know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, Summer, how important is it for us to have a diverse media landscape? Well, I think it's very important, and I think also in terms of what we think when we say diverse media landscape, because mm. you can also have um, um, a media outlet that is it in itself um, reporting in a diverse way that I would consider to be contributing to a diverse media landscape. Um, and I also just wanted to um, build on what was just said um, with regards to people not realizing that perhaps they are journalists themselves as they are reporting on news that's happening. 
and having a responsibility to get the facts right. And I think that that leads us into another question right now, and that is, are some of the platforms that they're using um, publishing? publishing houses, publishers, Mm. um, because they are publishing the content. Um, And I think also thinking about where is TikTok coming from? Who is responsible for TikTok? And that gets to this question of whose responsibility is it to make sure that the information that is being published, that is reaching um, um, the masses, is accurate um, and accurately informs? And I think that leads us to another question. And these are the questions of the day. And that is, how are the algorithms working? Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, that that those are questions for lawmakers to potentially answer, but so far and they who's going to hold the lawmakers accountable to answer those in yeah. the interest of the public? Mm-hmm. If, and how do we do that in a way if the public doesn't have accurate information? And, and you know, I, I, in a recent, I was going to move on to this talking about diversity. Recent column for the Columbia Journalism Review, Wesley Lowry says that historically the press has seen itself as a white product for white audiences. Last September, we had Tennessee Tribune publisher Rosetta Miller-Perry on the show, and she spoke to us on this. Let's listen to a little bit of what she had to say. For some people, and I've experienced this from telephone calls, that African-Americans believe what they see in the white press. The white press is the last word. Um, And I think... If, if the black press doesn't come behind and tell the real story, you know, people would have made up their minds about what has happened or what they read in the white press. They don't see the other side. Summer, is it important? Well, let me ask you this. Does who delivers the news affect the content of the news? The messenger is important. Um, and messenger can inform bias and it can also inform perception of bias. Mm. Explain. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that when you, it depends on the issue that you're that you're covering and that you're dealing with, and the sensitivities around those issues and the complexity around them too, and the history as well, and an understanding of that history and a relatability to it. Um, and so, I think that what she's getting at is 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 that you really need to make sure we don't also engage in what we call revisionist history. Um, and so, how do you you have the facts and you have truth? Truth is your relationship with the facts and how you experience it. So in order to make sure that you have the facts all all reported in a way that it can be received by the audience, you have to have diversity. You have to have diverse voices. You have to have a diverse way of reporting so that you people can be informed by the facts and experience the truth in an authentic way. I want to thank you both. We could do this for an entire another hour, I bet. <laughs> Summer Ali the is the founder and CEO of Millions of Conversations and is with the Vanderbilt Project of Unity and American Democracy. She was joined by Levi Ismail who is an investigative reporter for News Channel 5. Again, thanks to you both for being with us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. This, today's episode was produced by Magnolia McKay. Our senior producer is Steve Farouche. Our digital lead is Anna Geigos cannon Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Miss Rosetta Miller-Perry. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.